0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Monica Naj, who is the Director of Reformative Services at the Safe Haven Partner Abuse Intervention and Prevention Program about working with abusers, red flags, language, isolation, and what domestic abuse agencies can do to help you. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A. With me today, I have Monica Naj from Safe Havens Partner Abuse Intervention and Prevention Program. You are the director of Reformative Services and you guys are out of Texas. Thank you very much for being here today with me. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
0: So you have been uh, involved with this organization and domestic uh, violence. Uh, and, you know, this is a podcast normally about uh, narcissistic abuse. I consider narcissistic abuse under the domestic violence umbrella, uh, and you know a lot of people don't uh, who are abused uh, with narcissistic abuse don't actually go and, and use the services available. So, you know, you being here today and clarifying a lot of things for our audience about uh, narcissistic abuse, domestic violence as a whole. Um, can can you kind of start off explaining uh, how uh, narcissistic abuse uh, fits in to uh, your service? And then also explain, I guess, the Duluth model, which is the model that uh, your uh, – that, that Safe Haven uses.
1: Definitely. So – um, I'm a licensed master social worker, and I'm the director of reformative services at Safe Haven. So at Safe Haven of Tarrant County, we're a family justice center. So we have shelter, we have counseling services and legal services um, for people who have been in a relationship where there is abuse. So that could be physical abuse, but also emotional abuse and financial abuse, which we can get into so there are a lot of services out there. I think a lot of times people don't realize that they qualify for services if you're being emotionally abused. And the element that I oversee is I actually work with the abusers. And so if there is an arrest or if Child Protective Services gets involved or somebody goes to the doctor the hospital and there's any sign of abuse um, and it goes through the court system... The abuser gets ordered to attend my program, and it's actually six months long. So they have to attend for 27 weeks, and um, it's called the Partner Abuse Program because we changed it. um, Classically, it's known as a battering intervention and prevention program or a BIP but we changed it a couple of years back to partner abuse intervention program because battering was too vague. And when people were thinking of battering, even when the abusers were coming to the program, they were saying, well, I didn't batter. I didn't hit somebody with a bat. I didn't punch somebody. Well, no abuse is a lot more complex than that. And so I work with those. The majority of them are men. So currently right now, over 90% of, the abusers I work with are male, and we use, uh, it comes out of Duluth, uh, Minnesota, and that's where kind of the, this is a well-known model, it's called Creating a Process of Change for Men Who Batter, and it was created by somebody named Ellen Pence, who was a long-time um, domestic violence um, social worker and supporter of the cause. And what's unique about this model is though we work with the abuser, it's written with the survivor in mind. So everything we do, the entire model, um, all the handouts and the lessons that we use were guided by women who have been in these relationships and have experienced these tactics of control and coercion and intimidation, right? And so I like to say, though my client is the abuser, really, to me, the client is the survivor. Everything I'm doing is with her in mind. So
0: as, so, as, as, as part of as working with uh, the abusers, what I guess, uh, within that six months, uh, what is the goal uh, for them? What is the outcome that you're looking for?
1: Right. So the creating a process of change um, like the Duluth model, it it, it can be quite controversial um, with some other programs, honestly. So it's the most widely known um, intervention uh, curriculum we have out there, but some programs have different beliefs about what leads to abuse. And our curriculum, the belief is it's about power and control. It's about hierarchy. It's about wanting to, you know, constantly dominate and control their partners and they will do whatever they have to do to get that control. And it's a belief that can come from, you know, your upbringing and trauma. It can be perpetuated by society. So you can even see there's so many examples in the media. Um, and so where people really feel entitled. So what we do in the program is we go through different themes. And we work this out with them, um, going through their actions, their intentions, their beliefs, times that they minimize, deny, and blame their partners. And we really want to get to the core of their belief about why they're doing these things, um, what their intentions are, and get them to see that what they're doing is not healthy behavior. It's not um, anything to be proud of. It's not something that is really acceptable. And actually, a lot of times we find that people kind of have that aha moment where maybe their intention is I want to be with my partner and my children, but everything they're doing is pushing them further away. So we really drove through that for six months, and it, our groups are two hours at a time. And we have anywhere from maybe 8 to 15 abusers in one group. And there's two counselors or co-facilitators at the front of the group, and we're working with them for two hours. And so a theme I just did, I work with a lot of high-risk abusers, is responsible parenting. And so we go through... The first time we'll talk about what responsible parenting looks like in a healthy relationship, and then the following we 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 will talk about what it looks like in control so when you're when they're using their children as a tactic, when they're not paying child support, when they're trying to get you know everyone against the victim type of deal and so we work that out with them, and it's hard, you know because a lot of people come in and they have this mentality, I'm perfect, nothing's wrong with me, she's crazy sort of a deal. Right. And, and so it's sort of like, it's not like AA, but the first step is accountability. And so you have to be able to get to the point where they can acknowledge what they are, right. To move forward. And so that's what we do. And the success, you know, I have to be careful because the true teller of success is the partner. Right and sometimes by the point they get to us, maybe they're not together anymore. There's a protective order. They're in a new relationship. Um, So usually how they manage the efficacy of this work is on recidivism. Is the person arrested for this again? Are there more complaints filed against this person type of thing? But what we're really focusing on is that survivor being safe. Mm -hmm. So while he may be in the program with me, she can go get services, he's not gonna know about it. Everything we're gonna we're gonna do, we're gonna protect the survivor, right? And I think a lot of people unknowingly um do things to put the victim in more danger. And so by they could tell. Uh, the abuser that she's going to counseling or where she's at, or if they have a court hearing for custody, a lot of times the lawyers might tell the client, you know, just, just do this program and they'll drop your charges sort of a thing. Or the, if police get called to the scene, they might say, well, I got to take someone to jail, right? That's not true. A lot of the laws have changed. You don't have mandatory arrest anymore. And so we all have to pay attention to the messages that we deliver to survivors and to abusers about their actions.
0: So when the men that you're dealing with that are mostly men, the 90% men that that you're dealing with in these circumstances, for for the victims of these uh, crimes that have been perpetuated against them or or, or, um, abuses – you know, I guess for them, it's a momentary uh, reprieve. and In a lot of cases, it is maybe the last chance. They're giving a last chance for uh, the relationship to uh, succeed. And, you know, in in some ways, it's their last hope that this person that they love, um, who happens to be an abuser, might change or has the ability to change. So, um, you know, you are dealing with in a sense, um, kind of a last stand for a lot of people. And, you know, when we're dealing a lot with these relationships and you know, there's denial that kind of goes on, uh, throughout it until eventually, you know, people might get to the point where you're dealing with them and, and their family that you're, we're at that point where, uh, someone, uh, the abuser has to, um, take responsibility. Uh, But a lot of stuff that we deal with uh, in our world and in, in, on this podcast is, you know, a, a lot of times of how to uh, not get into these relationships in the first place, or if you are that victim, right. or, or if you are that victim that when you do leave this relationship, or if, or if you know, this eventually doesn't work out, and the person that you're helping uh, doesn't succeed in, 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 in what has happened, uh, when they go into another relationship, um, that there are a lot of red flags, and and you've dealt with um, you know abusers in, in this sense, so you have a really firsthand uh, account of everything and all the different types of red flags. So, for uh, our audience, uh, can you kind of put some of that uh, you know from emotional abuse to financial abuse and spiritual abuse? Can you kind of uh, give us a, you know a, a real grab bag of uh, the biggest red flags uh, for possible future victims, or hopefully not? Definitely.
1: Yes, and I just want to say that. So my goal isn't really to, isn't necessarily for the family unit to stay together. If that's not what's safest for the family, Um, the research shows a lot of times the uh, victims are safer when their abuser is involved with criminal justice system, is involved with a program like this. Maybe it'll give her an opportunity to do what she needs to do to get out. Right because a lot of people don't understand you can't just pack your bags and leave, right? That is the most dangerous time. That is when unfortunately a lot of homicides occur when there is domestic abuse. And so we want to make sure that we kind of get rid of some of those myths and we're doing everything to make sure that the victim is safe. And so when we talk about these red flags, right? And what to look for if you're currently in a relationship or maybe you're thinking about dating or starting to date somebody. You have to think about it like this, right? A lot of people think of things, especially abusers in like black or white or all or nothing thinking, it's all good or it's all bad. You love me or you hate me. There's no in-between. And people don't work like that. It's more like a Spectrum, And so I look at a risk spectrum, so from low risk to high risk. And what I tell people is there's little red flags along the way that occur that we seem to overlook because maybe it's new in the relationship and we're having such a good time and, you know, we've been so lonely or... You know, maybe the person tells us they've been through a lot of trauma, so we might make an excuse for them. And so some of the things you really want to pay attention to, one, jealousy, okay? Jealousy is not good or healthy at all in a relationship, and unfortunately, it's perpetuated in movies and songs and all sorts of things that if somebody's so jealous, it's because they're so into you, right? Because they love you so much. And so if you're with somebody and they appear jealous when you're around other men or if you go out with your friends, uh, sort of a thing, they might make a joke about it at first. You know, like, I, you know, I get jealous when you go out looking so good kind of a thing. That's a red flag. Mm-hmm. Another thing is, so typically, abusers will seek out somebody who has experienced trauma themselves, um, and they will kind of do this thing where they'll say, I'll, I'll be your family. I'll take care of you, right? Uh, you won't need for anything. Uh, I've heard people call this sort of love bombing or when they, you know, buy you fancy things and take you out. And I've I've listened to your podcast and the stories and I've heard some women say, you know, that should have been a red flag. And it's so sad because it shouldn't be a red flag when somebody's crying to you, when somebody, you know, compliments you, things like that. What is a red flag is when they're expediting it, like let's move in together within three weeks or a month, you know, your mind sort of a thing. So some of those possessive I know people like that. You know, you're my man, you're my girl. But that can be a red flag as well of this possessive type of nature, right? The person you're in a relationship should want you to be happy, should want you to have fun with your friends and with your family. So when they start to also make fun of your friends, or maybe say, you know, I don't like that friend. I think she's kind of slutty. Or I think, um, you know, she's kind of obnoxious. Or they start talking, you know, your family isn't really good for you. They're pretty toxic. That's your decision to make. And so any time someone starts to creep into your family or friend realm, that's a red flag. Um, another one will be, so with finances, um, Notice if the person, you know, asks you a lot of questions about your job, how much money you make, you know, sort of a thing, but they're never willing to tell you th- their own answers to those questions. So you don't know how much money they make. You don't know um kind of where, what they have because they're sizing up, you know, everything you have, but they're unwilling to share. So you want somebody to be able to answer every question they're asking you. And what we see um, with people who are in relationships, and this is one of the trickiest coercive uh, economic abuse type tactics is say you're at the point where you're pregnant and you're going to have a child together. The abuser will say, you know what? Daycare is too expensive. Why don't you stay home with the children and You know, they need a mother, we'll save money, uh, sort of a deal. And then what happens is you're at home, and now I'm the one working. This money is my money. You need to ask me for an allowance. You don't know how much money we have in the bank, right? You can't access that. I will give you money when you ask for it. And also, when I get home, because you're just, you know, quote-unquote, just staying at home all day, everything needs to be how I like it, right? I need a certain kind of meal ready for me. I have all these expectations of what I need because in essence, you're kind of my property now. Um, And I want to clarify, I'm not saying that all people who decide to do that, stay home with their children and have that kind of relationship is abusive. You know what's best for you, right? But when it gets to the point where you're having to Ask your partner for things, you know, kind of like a child. Can I have an allowance? Can I buy this? That's a red flag.
0: So, so the, you know, in the history of my Survivor Story podcast and all of the emails that I get, the most difficult um, ones that I get because I have no answers for it, you know, and there's a lot of people that have been on our show before where, you know, they tell their story and it's hard to find, you know, um, stories from people who were in those situations who um, were divorced, not, or, or they, they know they, they want to get divorced, but they've been married for 25 years they haven't been in the workforce for 25 years. They have, you know, uh, children, uh, they have nowhere to go. And then specifically, uh, small towns, um, right. it is, you know, bigger city. It's a, it was, it's a different story, but in a small town, um, you know, I've had many emails back and forth with people where I, I asked them, please, you know, uh, get a hold of a domestic, uh, abuse agency. And they say, I have, they, they, the ones that haven't like, we're in a small town. There's, there's this one, that one hasn't been able to help me. What do I do now? And, you know, I, I, you know, you give the number to uh, the main domestic agency hotline. I think it's the hotline.org. And, you know, you hope for kind of the best, but for, for those people specifically, how do you uh, deal with that type of. Uh, or your agency deal with that type of um, abuse and because uh, that's a specific uh, kind it's very difficult because you know financially in our world of we always tell people you know to start saving your money saving your money saving your money for that day but when you have no ability to um, how do you kind of help people uh, around that and as far as services goes especially when it comes to a small town
1: that's a really good point, um, because it's definitely a flaw that, that exists, right? And so when we think of, you know, people call them food deserts. So there's like small towns or cities that don't have grocery stores or maybe don't have the nutrients you need. It's kind of like a survivor desert in some of those small towns where Yes, they need to have an agency that can provide services, but that agency may be, you know, overflowing or they might have a different kind of mentality about abuse. So I just talked to somebody who works at kind of a small town agency, and they were saying, you know, the people in this town aren't even on board with the support mechanisms we're trying to we're trying to get for these victims. And so it's not just that. There might not be room for them or support for them. That town might have the mentality that they don't need it, which is just horrible. And so there's a couple things that I think of, which is, one, if you know the town you're in, you don't have those services, trying to go more for a national line or looking at what is the nearest larger city that's next to you. So if you're in Texas, I would say look at Dallas, look at Arlington, look at Fort Worth. It might be an hour away, though, which presents another problem if you don't have transportation. But at least right now, one of the unintended benefits of the pandemic is most all of our services are online now. And so we're able to reach out to people who are in those smaller towns that we couldn't get before. And so you can get at least an assessment and some counseling online with somebody. You can use your phone and do a call and then get those wheels turning, get the legal service support, get the job service support, um, get connections to go to a shelter. I know at least our shelter, there's a bus, and so they'll pick you up and take you. Um, and so I would think try the national line, and they can always direct you to the nearest um services or some of the, you know, can you get food stamps? Can you get some other social services if you don't have money to meet your minimum needs, right? We talk about the hierarchy of needs. You have to survive. You have to have food and shelter and all those things. So let's make sure you're getting those things. And then I think your best bet is trying to find the nearest agency that's in a bigger city. And that's not a good enough answer. I know it's not, but you're pointing to a problem that exists that we need to work on. Mm -hmm. Um, Saving money is hard to do if your abuser has been controlling your money, right? And so some people have gone, if they couldn't get into the um, abuse shelter, have gone to a homeless shelter. I know some people have told me, you know, I don't want to uproot my kids and take them to a shelter. I I do know a lot of these um, domestic abuse shelters are actually... Very nice. It's not kind of like what you're thinking of of maybe like a detox or some kind of cot on the floor situation. Um, and a lot of these, you know, city bigger agencies have that legal support to take to help you in court. Uh they'll role play with you and kind of play the defense attorney and play the judge and play this out so you can practice. They will help you find a job, they'll give you a nice outfit, different clothes if you're trying to find a job. There's so much support out there, but you're right, it's not consistent in some of these small towns. Um and I think also having at least one person who's your safe person is good, but part of the isolation that these abusers like to do is they like to isolate you from everybody so you don't have that person or maybe people who don't understand this abuse um, might get frustrated with you and stop talking to you. And so that's another issue Mm -hmm. that people face.
0: So I uh, railroaded you in, in, even though it was a good railroad, uh, we were talking about, um, you know, a lot of the red flags and, you know, you brought up their isolation and, as far as as red flags go, um, you know is isolation uh more of like a symptom of of the red flags um, or or is that kind of some of those red flags sowing the seeds of uh, isolation in the future?
1: a little bit of both, so can I give you some examples of tactics of isolation yes. and then if you want, I can give you kind of like a little story of it that I've heard. So people think of isolation and they just think of like, you know, being in a corner or being completely alone, but there's so many other tactics of isolation. Opening your mail is a tactic of isolation. Following you around, listening to your phone calls, reading your emails, reading your text messages and your social media Um, Using jealousy to justify what they're doing to you, not letting you have a phone or have a social media account, preventing you from having your own financial account. Let's just have this one joint account. You don't need to have your own account. Making you dependent on the abuser for transportation, constantly checking in on you. I hear that a lot with women, right? Checking in on me constantly throughout the day, that is a form of isolation, Preventing you from being around other men or having male friends. Um, accusing you of having an affair. Leaving, this is a big one. When you're having an argument and the person leaves during the argument after they have the last word, that is a big tactic of isolation because they're intentionally doing that um, to scare you if they're coming back or not, right? If they left for good, so that they don't have to hear what you have to say. And then when they do come back, you're just so relieved the person came back, you drop it, right? Um, making you go to all of his family holidays and friends' outings to forget about yours. Those are all tactics of isolation. And it sounds kind of bizarre, right? But there's little pieces that are setting you up to be distanced from the world around you. To, they're trying to cut off the connectivity with the friends with you know access for help, all sorts of things piece by piece, opening your mail, checking your phone, and they'll make jokes about it in the beginning, right like i'm just so you know i'm sorry i was I was burned in a previous relationship she cheated on me, and i'm just you know I'm nervous about this, or they always use some kind of trauma as an excuse, so these people will always play victim.
0: So, can you discuss language and how it changes within a relationship? Right.
1: So so you're going to notice this language changes. So in the beginning of your relationship, it's going to be my girl, my lady, you know, type thing, my woman, positive things that you think of positively maybe make you feel a belonging, right? Or like you're a part of somebody. But then when the emotional abuse really hits on, what uh, abusers will start to do is they'll start to call you names like, you know, an idiot. Or you're such a bitch or you're such a nag or you're such a slut or a whore or lazy. or And the reason that they're doing this is it's not just because those are hurtful words, but it's because it's the, I can, you know, dehumanize you and I can make you this object, this bitch or this idiot and not, you know. Mary or Lynn, my girlfriend, or the mother of my children, then it's easier for me to build up to the point to hit you or to, you know, shove you into a corner or to abuse you more. Because now I've taken away your humanity. You're not, you know, Stacey or Sarah or, you know, Maria anymore. You're that bitch that I'm sick of. You're that nag, right? And and it's, it's meant to make you feel like that as well, right? Because you have this sense of loss, like, I don't know who I am anymore type of thing. It'd be gaslighted where you're not sure, am I crazy? Am I really a nag? Am I really stupid? You know, am I really too dumb or whatever that this abuser is saying to be with anybody else, right? You're such a bitch. You're such a pain in the ass. Nobody else wants you. I'm putting up with you. Right.
0: So we've talked about different types of language, different types of red flags, and now. When it comes to people, we have a lot of different types of people, different backgrounds, etc. So when it comes to your program, do you uh, blanket things for every single type of person because you have different religions? You know, people are going to deal with things in different ways. So you can kind of maybe elaborate on how you guys uh, maybe individualize things or uh, blanket things when it comes to the people who are inside your program.
1: So – so we use the same curriculum for everyone except for, it's it's a little bit different for women. So for women who are referred to our program. And it's a little bit different for people who are in LGBTQA plus relationships. And the reason that is, is because one of the aspects of our curriculum is called the power and control wheel And I encourage people to look it up because it gives a a breakdown of these types of abuse and some of the tactics that are used. And one of the segments of the power and control wheel is male privilege. And so that's a tactic that abusers will use against their partner. Um, and so for an example is, you know, kind of treating her like a a servant or not sharing in the child care, acting like the master of the castle sort of a deal. And you obviously can't apply using malprivilege in a women's group or in a relationship that's a same sex relationship because they're both men. Right. And so that's a little bit tweaked. But when it comes to abusers who are coming from different cultures or religious backgrounds, we tend to not get too into, like, interpreting their scripture because I'm not, you know, a religious expert, right? And when you focus on kind of those, like, I think, what are they, red herring arguments? When you try to focus on those arguments that are outside of the bigger point, they win. Because they want to pigeonhole you into having an argument about something they know more about, right? Or something that they think they're an expert on because they think they're experts on everything, right? They're perfect. And so I say, let's, let's put this aside for a minute. Like what are your beliefs as a person? Because if you want to talk about, Oh, I'm using the scripture. Are you literally not eating fish on these days? Right? Like are you literally doing every single thing in there? No, you're not. So you're picking and choosing what benefits you and you're using it against your partner. So like, let's get real and talk about why you're doing that now. What do you think about yourself and what you deserve and what a relationship looks
0: like? So, you know, right there, you're kind of talking about ways of going about curbing abuse or at least handling abuse. What are, I guess, the myths about uh, curbing uh, abuse for uh, you know, the, the victim themselves.
1: Okay. So this is probably going to upset some counselors out there, but go to couples counseling is a huge myth, huge, huge, so dangerous. Um, because when you're in a relationship with a narcissist or an abuser or someone who has any kind of, you know, personality disorder or substance use or mental health or or is controlling you and hurting you, couples counseling is not the place for that because you don't need to change. The abuser needs to change. And usually what happens, just like when you go to the church for help and the message is kind of filtered, in couples counseling, the abuser is not going to present the whole story. So the counselor is going to say, well, it sounds like you need to work on this and this and this. And then you're going to get it in your head like, oh, maybe something is wrong with me or I am, you know, needier, or maybe I am borderline or have anxiety or whatever and think you need to change yourself. No, you don't need to change anything. The abuser needs to change. And so couples counseling is wildly inappropriate. And a lot of people, the courts used to just, you know, recommend it, go to couples counseling or go to anger management. You know, I hear that a lot. You know, this person needs to go to anger management. A lot of these abusers don't have anger problems with anybody else, right? They don't have a criminal record for getting into fights with other people. They're targeting their partner. And so there's no need to manage anger. It's the belief about what they're owed and entitled that needs to be changed, right? It's the need for power and control. It's this kind of grandiose thinking that I'm the master. And so... You know, anger management could, you know, help someone who has a generalized anger problem, but that's not enough. And what I've seen with abusers is that they almost like saying that they're going to anger management or going to anger management because it's sort of this like, it's acceptable for a man to be angry. So I can admit that, like, haha, I just have an anger problem and I'm going to anger management. It's hard for somebody to say, I'm going to a battering program, or I'm going to a partner abuse program because I'm an abusive individual. Nobody wants to say that, Mm -hmm. right?
0: You know, did that answer your question? uh, Yeah, you know, one of the biggest, one of my biggest beliefs is before anyone, even if you're not in an abusive relationship at all, but before anyone goes see a couple counselor, please get your own. In my mind, it's always please get your own separate counselor that's different from whoever you're going to be seeing as a couple's counselor. Um, Just because, you know, you need that other person, you know, an abuser can be charming and, you know, the person that, you know, shows up in those, um, those meetings might be completely different person than, than, you know. So I always try and, you know, my belief is, you know, get your own separate person first even if you don't have an abuse problem and you're just going into a couple's counseling session, you know, whatever method person is using the like Gottman method or, or whatever, just, it's just the safest kind of like a check and balance, the safest thing to do, because you know, therapists aren't made equal. And, you know, there's, you don't know, sometimes you're going to a therapist, you've never dealt with them before. You don't know if they're good or not. You don't know anything that much about them. So having a, a second person for another therapist for yourself to be like, that shouldn't have happened, you know? Um, so that, that to me is very important. Um, can I, guess, I
1: add? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I tend to agree with you, but can I add a yes. step to that? Sure. sure. I think it's important to find your own counselor, but find your own counselor through an abuse agency or find a counselor who specializes in this type of abuse. Because like you were saying, not all counselors are equal. Some specialize in mental illness, some specialize in like just anxiety, some specialize in all different sorts of things, right? And so you want to find a counselor who specializes in abuse and trauma. And, you know, if you go through a domestic violence agency, even if you don't like their counselors, right, because domestic violence agencies has Counselors who specialize in this, you can ask for a referral or, you know, who's a good person or go to a website. Who's a good person who's experienced in this? Because you want that person to understand trauma. You want that person to understand all these aspects of abuse because unfortunately, everybody doesn't, right? So if you go to, you know, uh, a cardiologist, a heart doctor, He might, yeah, he's a doctor, but he's not going to be an expert in skin conditions, right? And if you go to, you know, a licensed professional counselor or, you know, a psychologist or whoever, they're going to have their specialty. It might not be this type of abuse. So you want to find somebody who specializes in that, right? So they can recognize these signs and they can offer you feedback and support.
0: That is very important. And thank you uh, for adding that because it is uh, another big thing that does happen is with a lot of people who've been through trauma and abuse is being re-traumatized by your therapist who doesn't know uh, how to handle the situation and says all the wrong things and re-traumatizes someone where it sets them back even even further. Um, but, oh, yeah. So I guess, you know, one of the things before we end is, you know, a lot of the time, you know we're dealing here, uh, or at least in, in my world, we deal a lot with uh, narcissistic abuse or, or really mostly emotional abuse. And a lot of people who um, who are emotionally abused don't use the services of uh, domestic violence agencies. Um, so, so can you kind of uh, give everyone a little bit of information uh, who may be listening uh, to this about, like, what services are available to people who might not think that, you know, sometimes people think, like, I'm abused, but, like, it's not as bad as these other people. These services are for them. Uh, so can you kind of give a rundown of, uh, of things that you guys do that can help people uh, who are in the emotional abuse category without it actually being uh, physical?
1: Definitely. So if you are being emotionally abused, you need support and you definitely qualify to get your own counselor, your own referrals for maybe legal services, if you're married and you want to get divorced or, you know, financially, you need to figure out your assets or you need, you haven't been working or, you know, it's the pandemic and you're having a hard time finding another job because you got furloughed. You are entitled to all those services, right? And emotional abuse is abuse. When your partner is putting you down, they're playing mind games with you. They're giving you the silent treatment, or calling you names, gaslighting you, telling you, you know, you just have anxiety or you have bipolar. A lot of abusers love to tell their partners they're bipolar for some reason. That's that's a real big one that I hear a lot. You know, maybe they make fun of you and then say you can't take a joke, right? Talk about your body. These sorts of things affect you. They affect your health. They wear you down. And the thing is, is a lot of times, these abusers do this for years to get to the point where they maybe start to get physically abusive or can control you more because their goal is if I can emotionally abuse you and put you down enough that you have shrunk so small, I can just kind of carry around in my pocket and do whatever I want with you. And that's a dangerous place to be, right? They will do all this to isolate and to get you, um, Kind of in this position where it's very hard to get out of. And so when, if you're hearing something and you're recognizing, you know, I feel like maybe I'm being emotionally abused, one of the big emotional abuse tactics is they'll tell you you're being too emotional, right? And, and it can be very hard to kind of figure out what's what when you're in a relationship like that. Especially when it's with someone who you respected or you think is intelligent, um, you think is wise or funny, you know, you're going to believe them. So definitely these services are available to you. If anything, get yourself a counselor, get yourself set up to see what your options are. Nobody's going to force you to do something you don't want to do, but it's good to know what's there for you. And so definitely call um, uh, it 's going to say a domestic violence agency or intimate partner violence agency in your area and see what your options are. Talk to them they 're going to be very confidential they 're going to make sure um, even the websites if you pull up a website, most of them have an escape button where you can click it and it 'll make the screen disappear if the person comes in the room um, and so these services are definitely available to you. It is a big deal. Emotional abuse is abuse and you have the right to get support.
0: So before uh we end off everything today, uh is there anything that you want to tell us that your agency is currently doing and how uh people can reach your agency who are in Texas? Um and and other things that are going on uh that you might be uh eventually uh debuting down the road.
1: So we have a lot of, we've expanded and grown a lot during the pandemic. Unfortunately, this is such a ripe time for this type of abuse because there's this forced isolation, right? And so we have expanded the victim services. Uh, right now we just doubled our, um, size in group size and staff and bringing on more of these cases, um, updating our website. And so I do want to give you the number. If you're in Texas, especially in, you know, the Metroplex area, um, and you need support, the hotline number is one 701 7233 You call that number 24 hours. Somebody is going to answer to talk to you. Um, right now, We have a really big issue with this abuse because the courts are backed up, right? The police are busy, and so it's harder and harder to get the support. But I think it's very important for people to know that these agencies, these abuse agencies that specialize this are ramping up and offering more services, working harder to bring people in to help you so that somebody is there, Um, And so you're not completely alone or isolated. You know, there's somebody you can talk to. I think that's just the main thing. Everything else that we're doing doesn't matter. The most important thing is for you to know that there are services there for you and that all these abuse agencies are doing the best they can to hire more people, to bring on more services, to be ready when people call or people come in and need help.
0: Well, Monica, thank you very much for being on our show today. Um, you know, you, you gave us a lot of, uh, good information and I know that everything, you know, today you're going to help at least one person. I know that. So thank you for doing what you do, uh, and being here and for, you know, everyone who's listening, all of the information about Safe Haven will be in the description, uh, of the show, all of the phone numbers, uh, as well, uh, to reach someone, um, through their hotline, Um, so Monica, Monica Naj, thank you very much for being uh, with us here today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And for everyone who is listening, I hope you have a good night.